Well, that is our prayer every time we come to the Word of God, isn't it? Speak your truth, O Lord, till your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. Let's turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 5. We'll begin reading with verse uh, 33 in just a a moment or two. Matthew 5, we're um, continuing this look at the Sermon on the Mount. And as you're turning to Matthew 5, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been there. Um, Let me just take a minute to see how diverse our church family is. Just a a quick, quick quiz here. How many of you are real Christmas tree people as opposed to artificial Christmas tree people? Let's show of hands. Okay. And then without shame, fake people, fake church people. Okay. Pretty good. What? Anybody? I didn't expect hooping and hollering. Um, anybody do both? All right. How many of you HBC members are old building people as opposed to new building people. If you, if you don't know what I'm talking about, you're not. Okay, so old, old building people. All right. New building people. All right. Um, all right, last one. Last one. How many of you, show of hands, have ever experienced a world in which every person always kept his word? Boy, no diversity there, right? Only commonality. Even even those who are among us and love to talk about the good old days, you'd have to agree that, that whatever can be said about the good old days is that people lied then too, right? Not always, but always. In fact, ever since the fall, Um, in all times, in all cultures, people made in God's image have faced the reality that we cannot always trust other people's words. Um, That man you're thinking of now, um, he doesn't always mean what he says. Or maybe you're not thinking of a man, you're thinking of a woman and, and you realize she doesn't always say what she means. And and the difficulty with all of this is it's not always to do with other people, is it? The truth is, your own words are not always trustworthy. You and I always, or don't always say what we mean, and we don't always mean what we say. And this is why we live in a world of oaths and vows. We stress our own credibility when we take a vow. Or maybe we require pledges of others to to bind them to the truth, to to sort of shore up their credibility to us. And and this oath-taking and vow-making begins at a very tender age, doesn't it? How many of you know, remember the pinky swear? Yeah. Pinky promise. 
How about this one? Cross my heart, hope to... Oh, you've heard this. Stick a... No. Think, think of how strange this is, though. There is a point to all this. Think, think of how strange this is. Cross your heart and you're bound by truth. Cross your fingers and you're magically unbound by truth. Or so we think at a tender age. And however childish that kind of playing with the truth is, it is precisely what Jesus commands his people to cease. When he says to us, kingdom people, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. We, we, we shouldn't need to pinky swear. And we ought not to be those who have their fingers crossed. Christ calls his people to credibility. And so here is a passage in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 5, through 37, that gets all up in our business and forces us, compels us really to ask ourselves, am I credible? When I say stuff, do people have all cause to believe what I say? The words of our Savior, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, this is, this is a bit anticlimactic, isn't it? In, in, here in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus has been dealing with matters like adultery and, and divorce and, and, and lust and, and murderous anger. And, and now uh, he's, he's speaking to this business of taking oaths. How do oaths relate to you and me in this day and age? Well, listen, the the truths that we've just heard from our Savior, our King, go to the very core of a person's character. Uh, they, They get to the heart of what it is to live as a child of God. We live in a world of deceit, do we not? Christians are meant to be as the salt of the earth, preventing the, the, the further rot of, of shading the truth and telling little white lies and so forth. Christians are meant to shine the truth, the light of truth into this world that is so dark with deception. Now let's just remember, you're still listening, 
Let's, let's just remember where we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. What, what is going on here? Well, in Matthew's gospel, we, we, we read this, this wonderful reality that God had promised to send his people a deliverer, a son of David, a son of Abraham, and, and, and he has done so. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Emmanuel, God with us, has come. God means what he says, and he says what he means. He's always faithful. The scripture says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? (laughs) The long-expected king Jesus has come, amen, just as promised. All the lights and the trees and the candles and the cookies and all of that stuff, celebrating God's truthfulness to his people and his world. The kingdom of heaven is here because the king is here. And the king reigns even now over all things. And the scriptures say to us that the king is coming again to rule the nations with his people. You see, God says what he means, and he means what he says. And the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom in which everything comes under the rule of the king, including your words, including my words. Remember, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is proclaiming the way of the kingdom, not how to get into the kingdom. We'll come back to that. But life as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. So it answers for us the question, what what are the king's people like? Or or if you prefer, what are Christians like? Well, they're, they're people walking God's narrow way. The the gospel way. How narrow is this gospel way? It's it's as narrow as the cross of Jesus. And, And this narrow way is the way that leads us into a right relationship with God and a right relationship with the moral law of God. This should be sounding a little bit familiar. In other words, we're not legalists pretending to be perfect law keepers. You know, we're not, none of us is here today saying, well, what's a lie? What, what is that? What, what, what he means by that? So glad that's not me. Christ is our righteousness, amen? Nor are we licentious. Meaning what? We're not those who claim God's grace as a license to ignore his moral law. Well, I know I lie, but, you know, I am a grace person. And as a grace person, God's not really concerned about my, my lying. In fact, I wouldn't even call it lying. I would just call it, you know, colorful speech. Having been set free from the curse of the law, the hell that is reserved for all lawbreakers, we're set free in Christ to live out the law as an expression of our new nature, our new love for the king, 
and the king's law. So here in verses 33 through 37, King Jesus is not adding to the law. He's not watering it down, making it harder. He's correcting the wrong use of God's moral law by his people. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. I know you've been taught this, but you've been taught wrongly. That this is the the fourth of six antitheses or um, correctives that are vital to God's people if we're to have a right relationship to the law. If, If we're to avoid the pitfalls of legalism or antinomianism, license, And each of these antitheses acknowledges a long-standing corruption of the law, people twisting the law to get it to say what they want it to say, if you can imagine people doing such things. To swear falsely is to violate the third commandment, which is what? Exodus 20 and verse 7, "'You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain.'" For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Far more than a prohibition against swearing, uh, profanity, if you will, this commandment forbids any kind of behavior or speech uh, that tarnishes God's name. In other words, for people to name God and then live in such a way uh, that, that tarnishes God's name is to take his name in vain. And friends, every person in this room is a lawbreaker. Every person in this room, including your pastor, knows what it is to be able to look in the rearview mirror and say, my goodness, there are times when I've tarnished my Lord's name. So there's a commandment that basically says, look, don't, don't push that, don't put that fish on your business card and then conduct yourself in business like the rest of this lying world. Don't put that cross on the back of your car and then make angry gestures to the poor fellow who doesn't drive as fast as you do. You're taking the Lord's name in vain. But here is Jesus not dealing only with the third commandment, but with the the case law, the, the law code that God's people were given so that they would understand how to live out these commandments. What, what was that supposed to look like? I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, Leviticus 19, 11, and 12. Uh, you shall not steal Uh, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Turns out God cares what you say. Numbers 30 and verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And, and, and this, this case law in the Old Testament sort of begs a question. If, if God's people are called to be truthful, and we are, 
why in the world would we need to take an oath in the first place? Why would there need to be vows in the first place? Well, it's to do with the curse of sin, isn't it? Sin has polluted the truthful atmosphere of God's world. Sin has polluted the image of God in man, created to be true as God is true. Now, always battling the distortion of truth. You see, by nature, the scripture says, men and women like us lack credibility. Romans 1 says, fallen man exchanges the truth of God for a lie. It's not that we're always untruthful. It's it's that we're always capable of untruthfulness in any circumstance. Have you noticed this? Have you ever been surprised at the context in which you've experienced the temptation to say something that wasn't true? Oh, I'm sorry, he says. I I didn't get those three texts and those two phone calls from you. It's not at all that I'm blowing you off. Really? Because the technology these days is fairly reliable. Yes, she says to her little one, we'll, we'll go and do that next week, sweetie. That, you, you mark my word. And all the while, she's doubting whether or not that's even going to be possible. Last week, I had an annual physical, which is a treat. And, um, and, I, and it, was, it was on whatever blizzard day it was. I, don't, I, can't remember, I think it was Wednesday. And so I've got my Arctic survival suit on. And, and, the, and the first thing they do, of course, is they're going to weigh you, right? And I, and I looked at the scale, and I, and I looked at my boots, and I, and I said to the nurse, this isn't fair, you know? And, and so she went ahead and weighed me anyway. And, um, and then she looked at me, and she, and she said, well, what did you weigh last time? And I had no idea. Uh, that um, a routine physical would be this like minefield for the possibility of not being truthful. I'm not. I don't mean this to be funny. I mean, I was. I, I, the, the the chart was blank. What'd you weigh last time? And I thought, well, I've I've wanted to drop some pounds. Um, this is the day, right? No. So I, I mean, I, t- I told her the answer, the true answer. I thought, wow, that's that's amazing. It's a Go into the doctor, and he says to me, I knew this was coming. Do you exercise? <laughs> and he says, just look at me. And he, and he um, do, you, do you know what your pastor said? I have a membership at Planet Fitness. <laughs> that was my answer. And, and here's the thing. The, the fellow didn't even, he didn't even really hesitate. He just made his notations. I don't know what he was writing. But, but seriously, by God's grace, I'm a child of the king. I got a conscience that works the way it's supposed to sometimes. And so, comma, um, I have a membership at Planet Fitness, comma, I don't think they see me that often. <laughs> 
fact, I haven't been there in a long... No, I don't exercise. <laughs> but I was reminded... I and mean, I'm saying that as somebody who knew what the doctor was going to ask before I got there and as someone who knew he was going to stand in front of you good people and preach on truthfulness. <laughs> Knowing all of that, that happened to me. And I think the reason you're laughing at that is, is not so much to be unkind, but... You, you feel the weight of that yourself in life, don't you? Where the, the believer is always assaulted with these temptations to be something other than true. Why do we need oaths and vows? The psalmist puts it pretty bluntly, all men are liars. There you go. By nature, a woman's word is no guarantee of her sincerity. It takes a work of grace to change that. By nature, a man's sincerity is no guarantee of his word. A disciple named Peter said, with all sincerity, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. Peter was sincere in that. And Peter not only denied Christ, he bore false witness when pressed about whether he was one of the Jesus people. He denied with an oath, I do not know the man. So who's, here's a fellow on the varsity squad among the disciples, seriously, battling this mightily, this fallen nature. Person's word is no guarantee of sincerity. Watch my lips, no new taxes. And how many wallets are still quivering over that one, right? A person's sincerity is no guarantee of his word. Just ask Peter. But here's the thing. You still with me? Here's the thing. Um, what, what was it that Jesus said with respect to the law? He, he said in verse 17 of Matthew 5, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus has not come to say, So prevalent is this lying business. Let's just take a pass on it. Let's just admit that that's where everybody is and just move on to something else. No, Jesus says, don't think I've come to amend the law in such a way that speaking the truth no longer matters. I've come to fulfill all truth, says the king. All sons of Adam are liars. So are the daughters of Eve. Only one man has ever been true to his word in all things, the man, Christ Jesus. Those of you who read the pastorgram this past week, did anybody read that? You looked at Psalm 15 perhaps, and let me just ask you, how did, how did that sit with you? Or were you encouraged by that psalm? Or discouraged by that psalm? Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Now, as you read that this past week and meditated on that, 
Did that describe you as you really are? Not as you hope to be, but as you really are? I think not. Me neither. I belong to Planet Fitness. Who but our Savior and King, Jesus, walks uprightly so as to actually merit fellowship with God? Because that's what that psalm is talking about. Who but our Savior and King Jesus swears to his own hurt so as to fulfill the law on behalf of his lying people? You see, God the Son had promised in eternity past to come into this sin-stained world in all of its darkness and deceit and live among deceitful people the pure, true life that his lying people could not live. And having done so, our king then took the hell of God's wrath for all of your lies, all of my lies. He swore to his own hurt and he's kept his word. The one who is grace and truth personified was punished by the Father as if he had spoken every single one of your lies and mine. Even the little white ones, whatever that means, the ones we pretend don't matter. And to repent of your lying ways and believe upon the truth of Christ's vital work for you at Calvary, dying as your substitute as he has, is to be born again into a kingdom of truth. Have have you been born again into this kingdom? Don't miss that. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of truth, truthfulness, where truth is loved as the God of all truth is loved. The king reigns over all things, in other words, including his people's words. King Jesus reigning over your words? You ever think of your speech that way? Watch what you say, in other words. Watch what you promise others, let alone God. Your words, my words matter to God just as your thoughts and my thoughts matter to God. This is the fruit of the new birth. By God's grace, people born liars are being changed. People born into a world of deceit by God's grace, by the work of his spirit are being transformed into those who cast now the light, not just of gospel truth, but truthfulness in living into this dark world. Do you see, you're still listening. You you see how that's different 
from being someone who's merely religious? Because that's what's going on in these next verses. You didn't think we would get to them, but there you go. That's what's going on in these next verses. The religious people of Jesus' day simply wanted to appear truthful without actually being truthful. That's what the oaths in ancient Israel had turned into. The scribes and the Pharisees had developed a very complex system of religiously sanctioned lying. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus speaks directly to the Pharisees when he says, Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. You see, these religious leaders, this all was very churchy, had concocted a complex system of avoiding truthfulness all the while appearing to be truthful with their oaths. You swear by the temple that this is so. I'm going to do this. Oh, but you didn't swear toward the gold on the temple, gold of the temple. You you swore by the altar, but you you didn't swear by the sacrifice on the altar. That nonsense was the, the cultural equivalent of crossing your fingers. I know I swore, but you know what? I had my fingers behind my back crossed. How's that? And here is Jesus, the same Jesus who says to his people, look, I want you to stop playing games with your marriages. I want you to stop looking for loopholes in this marriage thing when you wake up one day and figure out you married another sinner and so did your spouse. And now the king comes and he says to his people, look, I want you to stop playing games with your words. Your words matter. Back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I I, I know you've been told this stuff, but I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. You can imagine, perhaps, people in Jesus' day saying, well, um, you know, saying to themselves, I'm I'm, I'm not going to be truthful about this, but I'd sure like it to sound truthful. I'd sure like everybody else to think it's truthful. So I'm just going to swear by the temple. I'm going to swear by the earth. I'll I'll swear by uh, Jerusalem. I'm just not going to take the Lord's name in vain. Turns out, To swear by anything is to take the Lord's name in vain because the Lord is over everything, right? And Jesus says to them, stop lying. Stop deceiving. Stop hiding falsehood behind your religion. The king's people don't cut their lives into little compartments and say, well, these compartments, this is where the king reigns. These other compartments, not so much. 
But he's good with that as long as it kind of looks like he reigns over these other compartments. Here's maybe a a, a more clear way to, to think of that. The king's people do not withhold parts of life from his rule. This is the change that is underway in the lives of God's people. It's not a quick one and done, this sanctification business. But are you not living with an awareness that Jesus keeps conquering more and more of your practical living in the way that you think? Of course, you're you're being sanctified. One day you will see him and be like him. Amen? And so right now, in real time, you're being made more like him. What's Jesus like? He's truthful. He's true. A couple of weeks ago, we asked the question, well, what, what are Christians like? Christians are, Christians are grateful. What, what, what are Christians like based on this passage? What are, what are the king's people like? They're credible. They say what they mean. They mean what they say. And they stick out like bright lights in a world that's rotten with deception and unreliability. Verse 37, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Now we want want to be careful with this because this passage is not saying to us that all oath-taking is wrong. It's not saying to us that you should never take a vow. In fact, the context of this is really important. That's why we spent a little bit of time on context here. There are those who who will will say today, hey, Jesus says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. You should never uh, take an oath in in court, for example. You, You shouldn't need wedding vows because your yes is yes and your no is no. Turns out that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that the need to embellish our words with with solemn-sounding vows to mask untruthfulness, lies, is evil. It comes from the evil one. To, To want to appear truthful all the while knowing we're not is the base element of our fallen nature. So we shouldn't have to say to one another, hey, I I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my mother's grave. Why in the world do you drag your mother into this anyway? Leave her out of it. This is to do with you and me. Let your yes be yes, your no, no. When When you're credible, that is the case. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way in his uh, commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, let us remember that everything in our lives and conversation is in his presence and may indeed be the thing which will determine what others will think of him. Wow. What does the world think of our God when we say on a wedding day, I promise to love, honor, and cherish her. I promise to love, honor, and cherish him. And yet the divorce rate 
among believers is not all that different from the divorce rate among unbelievers. The opposite is true, though, also. Again, Lloyd-Jones says, how are people to become Christian? He says, one of the ways is that they observe Christian people. We're always being watched. This is perhaps one of the most potent means of evangelism at the present time. And then he says, we are all being watched and therefore everything we do is of tremendous importance. What a wonderful work God does in our relationships, particularly our, not only with, with each other, but out in the community, out in the community that is apart from Christ. And, 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 and members of our community can honestly say, you know what, those, those Christians... They always call it the way it is. They always do what they say they're going to do. And if they say they're not going to do something, they don't do it later. What what a witness that is. Warren Wiersbe, in in his commentary, says this. He says, "Our, our conversation should be so honest and our character so true that we would not need crutches to get people to believe us. Words depend on character. And oaths cannot compensate for a poor character. That's why I mentioned earlier, you know, putting, putting the Jesus fish on your business card, knowing that he's not involved in your business with other people. Um, don't do that. A Christian's words either commend Christ to others or take his name in vain. Now, we could just end there. Some of you are hoping for that. I can see that on your faces. That's okay. But we're not going to end there. I have to be truthful about it. Um, I I want us to just chase a couple of rabbits back into their holes before we we close. Uh, the, The first one is simply this. Is it ever okay for a Christian to take an oath in light of what we've just read? Because you you probably have some friends, perhaps, uh, who, will, who will argue in light of this text that you ought not to ever take an oath. Um, again, the, the, the context here is very important. Jesus is not forbidding all oaths, as you'll see in a moment. Um, he is forbidding the frivolous youth of, use of oaths and vows. And certainly he's forbidding the use of oaths and vows to mask deception. In fact, God himself sanctioned oath-taking as a way of solemnizing his people's words to one another. We already saw that in Numbers 30. But here's the thing. Jesus is saying to his people that our taking oaths should be pretty rare as opposed to common and therefore trivial. And he's certainly saying that oath-taking should attest to truthfulness rather than mask deception. That's the first rabbit trail. The second one is this. Doesn't God himself take oaths? Yes, he does. 
If oaths are necessary to, to solemnize words among people, and, and, and God is always truthful, God is not like man that he should lie, why does God then take oaths? You know, for the rest of this month, Lord willing, we're going to look at three of the, the great oaths, the great vows of God, Christmas promises. It turns out from, from Genesis to Revelation, this whole book, the word of God, is to do with his promises to his people. And he keeps his promises. God promised to send a redeemer, and he has. God promised to shelter his people from his wrath by his own means, and he has done so. God has promised an everlasting kingdom of righteousness, led by a king who is completely righteous, leading a kingdom of people who are true. Why does God then take oaths? Because you and I don't just fight the tendency to be lacking in credibility. We, We also fight the tendency to question the credibility of others. We are by nature a disbelieving people. I remember in, a, in, a, in, a, in another life years ago, I think some of you know I'm a recovering journalist. And when I, when I was in, in journalism school, I remember um, the professors teaching us um, print people, um, you, you better question what people tell you you can't just put it in the paper straight up. You've got to check it out. Why? Come on. I had one prof who said, you know, if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. <laughs> That's, I don't know about that, but it stuck. I mean, I remembered it. Um, our sin nature is such that we will question even the credibility of God himself. Isn't that why the tempter said... Did God really say? God's oaths are a concession to our sinfulness, not a reflection that there is ever any untruthfulness in God or that somehow his oaths mean more uh, than words spoken absent an oath. And, and, And we'll end soon with that thought. I wonder, friend, has the sin of unbelief been conquered in you? I don't mean unbelief of other people. I mean unbelief with respect to the word of God. That's that's the salient point here in all of this. One day, King Jesus is going to return. And the Bible says that many will perish eternally in hell when he returns why? Because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would save them. Unbelief. What is the truth that saves all who believe? Well, it's not a what, it's a who. It's Jesus. He is the truth. He is the way to forgiveness and life. As opposed to what? Condemnation 
and eternal death. Listen to Hebrews 6, beginning with verse 16. Now, when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. And without any question, that oath is binding. God also bound himself with an oath so that those who received the promise could be perfectly sure that he would never change his mind. How many of you are glad this morning that God never changes his mind? When he says to us, there shall be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, he means it. That hasn't changed. So God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. Therefore, we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold to the hope that lies before us. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. What a precious reality this is from our immutable God, our unchangeable God. What was was the question that the psalmist asked? Who can dwell with God? I mean, who can ascend his holy hill? How can natural-born liars, people like us, prone to cynicism and unbelief and doubt, have fellowship with the God of all truth? Well, you'll never make it by trying to reform yourself. Flee to Christ. Run to Jesus. Repent of your lying. And take refuge in Christ, the true one, who took the penalty for all of his people's lies upon himself. Christ is the the strong and trustworthy, true anchor for your soul. And he alone brings you into everlasting friendship with God. Do you believe this? And it's Christ in you that transforms you into the child of God who loves truth and speaks truth just as your king does. In other words, the king is credible. And by his grace, through the work of his spirit, progressively more and more, so are his people credible. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that when we come to your word, we come to truth. We don't come to things as some imagine them to be, We come to things as they really are. You are the true one. And Father, we thank you so much that you have given us the truth in your son. And Lord, you have given us the spirit that we might walk in your ways of truth. So Lord, give us lives that are truthful. Grant us the sweetness of fellowship with you as we walk in the light in a very dark world. And may you be glorified, Lord, through your credible people. 
We pray this, Jesus, in your name.